This is Creativity in Captivity. I'm Pat Hazel. Today's guest is a multi-talented comic composer, vocalist, and actor. She is an alumni of the renowned Groundling Sunday Company, and she has garnered a Broadway World nomination as a person to watch. She has opened for Rita Moreno and Ben Vereen in concert, but may be most recognized as Broadway Barbara, the artist that has done the most auditions without getting a leading role on Broadway. She's sassy, determined, and always sensational. Coming up is my conversation with the creator and performer behind the character that puts the broad back in Broadway, Leah Sprecher. That spark of electricity, a skipping stone that sets you free. You're captive to a mystery, the curse of creativity. La, 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 la. Hello, Pat. Thank you for having me. Happy to be here. It's great fun because I just saw you a few nights ago on recommendation from Frank Ferrante, who was a guest on this podcast. To me, when a referral comes from somebody to go buy a ticket to something, I always jump at it. And I didn't know what I was going to, and it bowled me over. So you do this frequently, this Broadway Barber performance. Yeah, I've started to, thankfully, now that things are opening up and people are actually going to live shows again. So I've been ramping up and doing it as much as I can. I did it pre-pandemic a little bit, and then the pandemic happened, which made me shift a little to some digital media, which helped me grow an audience, which we can talk about. (laughs) Yeah, no, I'd like to talk about it, but let's give the audience some context because I know that Barbara will come up throughout our conversation today. Yes. And she's sort of in the spirit of the great cabaret ingenues like Barbara Cook and Aline Stritch. And Patti Lapone. Yeah. Let's give them this sense. How old you were when you came up with this concept? I was in my 20s when I came up with the concept. And tell us how old Barbara is in your eyes. She's at least, you know, pushing 80 or more. Wow. Okay. Okay. So there's a little... There's a little difference in the age when you created and the and the character you're playing. Absolutely, yes. My whole life I've been very inspired by the older woman character role in the musical theater canon, and I was always too young to play it. So, although I did cover roles, I, I lived in New York for a long time and I pursued musical theater out there, and I was mostly in the ensemble of shows, sometimes covering the older character part, but not very often. And I sort of just wanted to be able to do it (laughs) already before being age appropriate to. So this is a perfect sort of thing for me to be doing. Yeah. And can I tell you in a one person show business, when you look at a guy like Hal Holbrook, who created his Mark Twain, when he was, I think barely 30 at that point, It lasted the rest of his life until he literally aged into being Mark Twain. His hair and his performance, it's actually very smart and savvy for you. I do. I feel like it's like the most brilliant thing to just grow into something and and be able to do it the rest of my life. Yeah. The other thing is it gives you a little bit of security, doesn't it? Because I know that Hal Holbrook said when there weren't roles to play or auditions to be had, he was always out there and he felt secure, which meant that he could say yes and no to parts because he always had an income. Absolutely. I mean, that's a huge part of this, as I mentioned before, never really feeling like I was given the opportunity to do what I do. 
And I didn't have this wildly successful career in musical theater that I wanted, or I never was on Broadway. I was never cast in any of these things I wanted to do. And I felt like I had so much inside me to do. You don't want to wait for somebody to give you that chance. And really, the only way you get to do everything that you do is if you create that opportunity yourself. I mean, some people get lucky, I guess, but the grand majority of us who are pursuing this as a profession realize that there's these like peaks and valleys, and that's just what we chose. And I had a lot of valleys and very few peaks. And so now, as I'm, I know I'm still fairly young, but as I'm getting older, I feel like I'm finally starting to hit because I'm creating something myself and giving myself the opportunity to do everything I want to do. And it seems to be working. <laughs> you are very cleverly showcasing everything that you have. Your sense of humor, you really have pipes. Like you can sing. And even though you're singing in character and you you also have this great, there's a wink in this, which is that you're constantly interrupting the song to give us this narcissistic <laughs> dialogue about your backstory, which is a really fun hat tip to cabaret singers who know how to flow in between the song and a joke. Right. And you do it. And then what I really am bowled over by is the dancing that seems slightly pained, like you've aged out of your ability to dance, but <laughs> you clearly know how to dance. And so it's almost not, it's not a, um, it's not a mockery of dance because you're really dancing, mm -hmm. but boy, when you start doing Fosse poses and stuff, it's hard not to laugh at, <laughs> at how much Barbara puts her heart into those poses. Right. Do you have a favorite Fosse pose? Of one of Barbara's Fosse poses? <laughs> well, no, let's talk about the real Fosse. I, I mean, I really think Fosse's poses are, I mean, they're a signature thing, obviously. Mm -hmm. You're doing those and then you're blending into Barbara's version of them and anybody can get a complete eyeful on Instagram by going or TikTok or any of these social sites and they can put in Broadway Barbara and then they can go to a, a thing that shows you doing the poses and they're hilarious. That video, the Fosse, Barbara's Fosse tutorial was really the first viral video that we had right before things opened up during the pandemic. I was right about to do a live show and we released that. And I say we, I, I co-direct, co-create with my husband. So he helps me create the videos as well. So we created that video and luckily that video went viral right before I did my first live show. But in that video, I think the reason why it was so successful was because Barbara can do Fosse well. And so these dancers were like, well, she's she's actually doing the style and how hilarious because you can't tell the difference between the fake moves and the real moves because they're it all blends together and she can actually do the moves. So, yeah, I mean, I love Fosse. I did Chicago when I was younger. I mean, I don't know that I have a favorite move, but I love the dancing in Chicago it just gave me an opportunity, again, to do the dancing I love and also poke fun at it, but also celebrate it, which mm -hmm. I think is the key to the character. People don't find it to be mean. They find it to be celebratory and just joyful and silly, which is rare. And I think it's because I can actually do the things that I'm doing on the stage. Right. I think about Steam Heat and they the silhouette of all the girls along the dance bar, that kind of visual 
That's big spender, I think. Yeah. Oh, you're right. You're right. Mm-hmm. It is big spender. But it is one of those ones where, you know, everybody has a slightly different tableau, or is that the right word for mm-hmm. them being like frozen pose. in time? Yeah. It's like a backlit sort of, yeah, tableau. Yeah. So, I mean, that like strikes me as a, you know, you're going to a Fosse show if you see that or a bowler tip or. Yeah, definitely. Teacup fingers or something like that. Soft boiled egg hands, they're called these hands. That actually is a real term. <laughs> I saw that dance craze on the internet. I think it was Fosse's Rich Man's Frug. It's so great to see an old dance that you haven't seen and it'll pop up on Instagram or something. And then everyone starts to imitate it. So let's mm-hmm. talk a little bit about social media and how that is a game changer for a creator like you to be able to connect with your audience mm-hmm. and then turn that into ticket sales. Yeah. I mean, I think with social media, a lot of people don't really go in it with a plan. It's sort of like they, they're making, and you don't have to, you're making content, you see what hits and then people often just follow that little narrow thing that hits and try to reproduce that thing that hits. And I think what we did very well when I started getting on social media was that the plan was always that live shows are what I love first and foremost. I want to show that I can sing and I can dance. I want the character to be who the character is going to be when you come and see her on stage, but even more so. I don't want it to be a letdown when you come to the live show. So I already had this live show and I just wanted all of the videos to kind of support that. So they're all stories, you know, showbiz stories or a dance video or whatever it is. And so when something is successful, it's great. And we will sometimes duplicate it like here and there, but we're not running one thing into the ground or pigeonholing ourselves as one thing. And I think that was the key. So luckily we had some success with some viral videos and I went over to TikTok and TikTok sort of, I, I have to say, I don't really like TikTok, but it did grow me an audience pretty quickly. And then in recent months, for whatever reason, Instagram is catching up to it. And I prefer that platform only because you can post show information more easily and people can find you. And I kind of feel like the people who really have interest in seeing a show will come over to Instagram and see my posts more regarding that. But I don't know. I just feel very lucky that it's translated well and that people come to the live show and they go, wow, this is even more than the videos. Yeah, that's important. It really is. Because I remember back in the day that a thing like Star Search was happening. Oftentimes somebody would do a short set as a stand-up comic and then they didn't have a headline act to follow it. So they would win and ultimately they only had 20 minutes and they had made 10 performances two minutes at a time. And now they had to fill an hour and that meant 40 minutes of fat in their act which was right. a, a terrible letdown. And that's what I feel like these like influencers or people who grew a massive audience really quickly now are like, okay, well, how do we make money? How can we tour? And what is that show going to, what is that hour long show going to be? And it's just stretching a two minute bit for like a whole hour. You know, that can't be easy. Some of the monetization is they trade the big database of people for advertising and endorsement and, you know what I mean? And they stay True. in that medium. But the truth is, if they want to go somewhere, if they do want to do a live event, or if they want to fill a stadium, they had better be thinking about that structure first and really have a good armature in place 
for the show. So your show, I'm not spoiling anything here, <laughs> is a series of great songs, comedic riffs, dances. I like that I don't know whether the guys I saw with you were local players or if they came with you, but it felt like they probably were from this area. Is that true? The drummer was from the area and then the twins. So <laughs> when I first did the show, they, they've been in it from the beginning playing for me, the piano player and the bassist. And they're twins in real life. And when I first did the show, they inspired the twins bit in the show. So right. they don't always play the show, but they were they were available. So they came out for it. Oh, good. Really made me laugh that Barbara introduces them as her children Mm -hmm. Um, and I thought to myself, oh, she could know these people or not because the way you play the character, they're just having a great time behind you. Whatever you say becomes the law in terms of the, them being your children or their personality traits. You're in the spirit of good improv. They're going along with it. Absolutely. We have maintained that bit though. So whenever I do have other uh, musicians, I'll just say, usually this is where, usually this is where I introduce my sons in the show, but since they weren't available, they're now dead to me, you know, so I'll just do I that. See. But yeah, uh, it's really, really fun. I guess I wonder a couple of things. Did the name Barbara come to you just because of its alliteration with Broadway, or is it a tip to uh, Barbara Streisand or Barbara Cook? Or so, did, where did that name come from? I mean, that's exactly it. The Broadway part of it didn't come till later. So initially, when I was at the Groundlings, I created the character at the Groundlings. She was first just a five-minute sketch. So I just thought of the name Barbara because of that, because it's an old, old-school name. There's a lot of women in, you know, divas that have that name. So I chose to call her Barbara. And she had a couple different last names. Her last name is Dixon now. And really, that was just inspired by somebody I know in the business who is very Broadway. But it gets me into trouble because there's a Barbara Dixon who's Scottish, who was in the original chess. And so people get confused. I've even had people contact me on Instagram thinking I'm that Barbara Dixon. She spells it differently with a, a CK. But, you know, I had to do some clarifying. I did a show in London and I said something about it. But yeah, so that's kind of unfortunate, but that's the name I had landed on for the sketch back at the Groundlings. So kind of kept that. And then when I created the Instagram handle, I added the Broadway to it. Let's talk about the Groundlings a little bit because you were in the Sunday company. Mm -hmm. Are you still involved with them? I actually don't go back as, I mean, I see shows a lot. I'm not performing there as often as I want to, but I loved going through the program you want me to talk about how the, the program works? I would love you to talk about it because I don't think the listener necessarily knows what it takes to get into the Groundlings and to stay in the Groundlings and to get to the Sunday company. Yeah, the Groundlings, it can be a very long process because there's just wait lists once you get to the higher levels of the school. So everybody starts at a basic level of improv training and the Groundlings themselves, the main company members, all at one point in their lives went through the basic training and made it all the way up to the top. So you start with basic improv. And then at the time I was there, you go to intermediate improv. Then you have a writer's lab class, which where you start to create characters and write sketches. And then an advanced class. Since I was there, I think they might have added advanced improv or even more classes on the path. <laughs> but when I was there, 
it was just those four levels. And then once you are in advanced, you get voted on into Sunday company, which is kind of like the baby company of the groundlings, where when you're in Sunday company, you're writing a new sketch show every single week. So you have a director and you are, it's kind of like a mini SNL where you have a pitch night on like a Wednesday night or whatever. And then your director chooses what they like. They have you rewrite and then they choose what's in the show for that Sunday. And so it's a different show every single Sunday and they do it with a six month terms. So basically you get into Sunday, you know, you're going to be in it for six months at the end of six months, the main company votes on you, whether to cut you, extend you, etc. And so I was in Sunday company for uh, an entire year. So I made it through one cut and usually you do three terms. So you do a year and a half in Sunday, unless there's a spot in the main company and they want to bump you up sooner or there isn't a spot and they want to hold you and wait till there's a spot. But usually it's a year and a half, but I did a year. And after I did the year, they were like, it just seems like you want to do musical theater. And they cut me. And I was like, that's fair. That is mostly what I, you know, I love musical comedy and that, that really was my first love. And then, but I always did comedy as well. So I started this training at the Groundlings and kind of simultaneously was doing musical theater and improv and sketch at the same time. But I really love musical theater, which is why it's amazing that I've been able to marry all of those things. Yeah. And in a weird way, I think that I would say that if I had advice to give to somebody, that's the real trick is to figure out how to make a quilt out of all of your interests so that when you hold it up, it shows everybody the fabric of your life. And therefore, when people begin to talk to you or ask you to do other things, it starts to match what the vision is you have, as opposed to like, I've heard people move to LA and they say, well, I'm going to be a car salesman in the day or a substitute teacher in the day so that I can audition and, and I'm telling you, when you start to add that into it, you're exhausted at the end of the day. Your auditions aren't good. Your stand-up comedy, you can't do late night sets. Like, it, the two things don't go well together. Yeah. I have a couple of things to say. <laughs> I used to think, oh, it sucks that I don't excel at this at one thing. Like, it sucks that I'm not, like, the top of improv comedy or the top of sketch or I'm, like, I'm not getting these opportunities to be the top of these things, or I don't have a high pop belt, which is like what Broadway really wants you to be able to like riff super high. And that's never been what I can do. And so I've always felt like I'm, I'm kind of good at all these things. And if only I could excel at this one thing now, at this point in my life, I'm like, well, thank God I have all these things that I can combine because who can, who can do all those things, who can do all those things well in one show or one that makes me unique. I mean, other people can do it. I don't mean to say I'm the only one who can do it, but <laughs> it is unique to me. Like all of these things that I do, playing melodica, playing piano, playing ukulele, singing, dancing, doing the jokes, doing all of that stuff in one show really makes me feel like, oh, it's, it is good to be skilled at many things. Oh, I, well, I agree with that. Like, I, I think it's important to try a, a little bit of everything in, if you're going to be in the arts, for example, just mm -hmm. the similarly, I feel like visual artists, while they might be a good painter, should try sculpture, should try things because it does inform 
gives you a, a little bit of a range in deciding, like how did the how did being in the Groundlings company impact your auditioning elsewhere? Did it seem to seem to be easier or did you feel more confident going into things? Now, this will be an unpopular answer, but I've always been a terrible auditioner. I've always been very self-aware and it's always, there's been times I've functioned okay, but by and large, I've just like melted under the pressure of having to perform in an audition setting, which is interesting. So in that sense, I, I wouldn't say per se that like training at the Groundlings made me a better auditioner. I think getting older and getting more comfortable with myself through just, you know, living right. has been what has made me better. But even now, I would say I don't really audition well. Maybe the heat of the moment. I think a lot of actors feel different pressure when they walk into that room versus when they're practicing at home. Or if you've got the part, you're relaxed, you're going to work and you're there's a process and we're going to rehearse and then. Right. But it's interesting because even if it's something that I don't even really want, I'm like, why do I feel this pressure? I'm like a commercial audition, like something dumb that I don't even care about. And yet I feel this like expectation, like I'm supposed to be something for this other person. And that is what messes with me, which is why I think I thrive in this setting of like, I've created this thing for myself. And not only that, but the character I've created as you've mentioned, is incredibly narcissistic. And so I can have this confidence that I don't necessarily have if I were just singing a tune as myself, because as myself, it's hard to be indulgent. Like I feel that these certain art forms can feel indulgent as yourself. And so being this narcissistic character allows me to do these things I love to do because it feels less self-indulgent. Oh, that's really fascinating because I do think there's an authenticity to her narcissism. She literally tells you that she's failed and somehow she makes it sound like a success, right? Like I think right. to me, that's the charm of it is that she's not mm -hmm. bullshitting you. Somehow she's, there's this layer of self-confidence that she could have done that part that Patty LuPone did, but they didn't pick her, but that's not her fault. Like she's ready. Right. She's camera ready. She can take over in the chorus line if she has to. And that really is like where I line up with the character and that I know deep inside, I'm like, I know I have the talent to get roles. I know I have all that. I just haven't been given that chance. And also there's a line in the show where she goes, what's the best platform for you? Broadway, Broadway can eat a butt. And like, I, and I, Leah, really kind of feel that same way. I'm like, we say that this Broadway is like the top of, it's what everybody knows. Broadway is the be all end all. And I used to be very attached to Broadway for meaning, but then you pursue the career and you're like, I just want to do shows I like with people I like. Like, isn't that the, what you're going to win? Isn't that the gift? And so there is a lot of me in the character, sort of just, I have this in me. I have the talent. These people haven't given me the opportunity. I'm going to claim it. <laughs> yeah. Well, can I tell you something that is true is that to be able to do an end around on Broadway, to be able to avoid it and to be suddenly playing all these 
regional theaters and little gem theaters that are all over the country mm -hmm. is a financial windfall because when you put something on Broadway or off Broadway and the off Broadway model is long broken where you can't make enough money to sustain the time there. So what ends up happening is if you have a successful show there and you have your name on the marquee, which is a little bit of the vanity people have going into it. It's like, I, I just want my name in lights, right? That's a, a, mm -hmm. an honest part of the dream, but it's so expensive that you're doing the show for pennies on the dollar while you're on Broadway. And then you have this debt from advertising the show and getting people to come and giving away tickets that you then spend several years on the road paying off the cost of the fun you had on Broadway. And you're paying back investors. You're paying all kinds of people. So, I mean, I, I didn't know I was doing it when I started doing a one-person show. By, by not going to Broadway, though, I was making money from the first gig out. And so all of those places that I played all around the country, and, and can I tell you, the audiences are just as good. They're hungry in these small rural towns where mm -hmm. they don't get a lot of shows passing through, and they appreciate seeing someone with talent, and they even just hang posters in the hardware store in these towns and dry cleaners, and they fill the, the theater up. Yeah, they're they're more appreciative of it because there isn't they don't have the options. They're not like overwhelmed with yeah. options. Like in and, and Chicago and in LA, there's a there's a lot of talent and there's right. also a lot to do. So if there's a Lakers game, nobody's gonna go to the fifty seat complex theater on Santa Monica Boulevard. There's it's hard to get those audiences. Yeah. What was your show? First show I did was a three person show called Bunk Bed Brothers, and we rented little spaces. Um, but the one man show what was called the wonder bread years. And it was written as a product of the fact that I couldn't necessarily get the other cast members of bunk bed brothers to commit to a show down the line, like six months or eight months mm -hmm. from now, this theater wants us. Can you do it? I don't know. I don't know what I'm going to be doing. So I had to scale. I had to write a show to get rid of everyone so that I could say yes mm -hmm. to those theaters. I mean, yeah, that's, that's sort of a, the same thing I've dealt with. I've created other things over the years that had many other people involved and quickly realized like, oh, <laughs> well, it's just hard because people have different commitment levels and they have other things that they're doing. And and it's really hard to line line that up. And you can for a time. And then suddenly somebody goes, yeah, I don't want to do this anymore. It hasn't given me the income I wanted in two years. So I'm piecing out. And so it's really nice to have something that's just your own. And like I said, my husband partners on it with me and that's just been such a gift. And it's like, it, it's just us. And so we can do anything we want with it. <laughs> yeah. Which is great fun too, because there's a lot of the world to see and those opportunities, yeah. they can be down the line, 18 months, the way that performing arts centers book pretty far out and they can be on short notice. Can you come to this club med two weeks from now? It's very unique. And I have to say, partly when Frank Ferrante told me about you is that I could tell right away that you were sort of coming from the same place. Mm -hmm. You know what it's like to develop content, to try material, to have to kind of surf the wave every night of a good crowd, bad crowd. How do you get through that? Mm -hmm. And what people don't understand it is, we know it's not a one person show. We do. We know that it takes right. lighting directors and it takes music directors and all kinds of people so that we can shine on stage. What they don't know is that you are your own seamstress and 
prop maker. And God, the amount of times I have to stop somewhere to get gaffers tape to fix my shoe or do something because there's nobody, there's no IT department when that computer's not working. Yeah. And, and not only that, but like I've been, I've been producing and booking the whole thing myself. I mean, Frank introduced me to Stuart and that was nice that Stuart had could pay for our travel and put us up. It's like, that's not always the case. Cause I've mostly for the past two years been company manager and flying out an MD to Indiana and, you know, booking us hotels and doing all of that side too. I'm feeling it start to shift, which I'm like, Oh, thank God. There's some people who want to help produce this thing and like see something in it. And so that's starting to happen more. And Stuart, you mentioned was from Austin cabaret theater. So he was kind enough to set me up there with a last minute ticket, which allowed me to spy in on the the whole thing, your performance, but also the audience and the venue that he had there. <laughs> the venue was interesting. <laughs> it was, it really was interesting. And it looks like it might've been a converted church. Yeah. He said it was like the original estate had this little chapel slash schoolhouse and that's what it was, but it, didn't have any infrastructure. So he brings in the stage and the lights and the sound and all that. And so it was an interesting spot to play. But as you know, that's kind of how it always is. You're like, it's a crapshoot. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the, one of the funniest ones is sometimes I've been to a big performing arts center, but they want to have more intimate experience and they don't have a black box theater where they would normally put a show like this. So they said, they yeah. said, Hey, we got this great idea that we're going to kind of have like a country fair feel and we're going to be in the lobby and we're going to have hay bales and people are going to sit. And I'm like, you got a perfectly good theater right behind that wall. Like what, what are we having a hoedown? They want to create an yeah. experience. Oh my gosh. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> you know what? There's lights, there's sound. Like why are we doing that this way? You know? Yeah. So much easier to do it in there. I mean, I found now doing it a lot, the venues that I really appreciate and I kind of, I like intimate venues, but there's a venue that I've been starting to do the, sh the show at in LA called the bourbon room. It's a nightclub theater space that they built for rock of ages prior to the pandemic. Oh, nice. So it's like a cool supper club sort of venue, but it's cooler. It's a little more rock and roll and it can fit over 200 people in there, but it's still cocktail tables and drink service and food. And I kind of really have found, I like that vibe a lot. And that audience size is just perfect because you can hear all the laughs and it's the sound is good. And so I've found, okay, that's kind of a perfect, a perfect kind of place and perfect size. But who knows as this gets bigger, I might have to right. uh, sell out arenas. That's true. Barbara, <laughs> an arena would be interesting. You'd have to have <laughs> giant martini glasses to take a bath in and stuff. I know. I feel like a full orchestra would be just, the dream. I would love it. Well, let me tell you, we know a good one. Uh, the fabulous Equinox Orchestra in Savannah, Georgia. They'll back you up any day of the week. And these guys are killer. Okay. I guess I got to go to Savannah. <laughs> well, are you aware of APAP, which happens in New York every year? Yes, I am. It's a, it's a conference for theater buyers and it happens mid-January. But the fabulous Equinox Orchestra usually does a showcase night and they put on their own stuff, but they have had singers join them. So if you're coming this year, maybe I'll connect you and you can jump on and do a song or two. I didn't have plans on coming, but I, I suppose I could. Is it bookers? Is it just independent acts? But don't these people usually have managers that bring them out to these 
Well, there's a combination of things, and that's what's really strange about it. And the pandemic kind of has whacked all the business models a little bit. But the thing is, it's the big dogs, too. It's the real Broadway touring bookers are there, and they're giving tickets out to Wicked and all those great things. And they're competing with the one-person show, and there's a mix of things. And to me, it's not the most intuitive way to sell theater. Yeah. Because then people have to put on short showcases, 15, 20 minutes. And oh, it's a very expensive thing for an independent artist yeah. to have a union tech crew in the hotel and and then have a minimum for a bar. And so those things are really difficult yeah. for the little engine that could perform where the, the big agencies are courting people with dinner. And I mean, I don't think most of the public knows that their performing arts center in their town is sending somebody to pick shows in this manner. Yeah. It is the epicenter of where the decision makers go. And the reason I started going was I thought, well, to be on people's minds, they have to know I exist. And they have to know I exist when they're thinking about booking shows, not when they go home. And when I contact them, they go, oh, that's funny. I just booked my whole season. Right, because everything's booking a, a year in advance. Yeah, and the reason that that's happening is that they have a brochure that comes out. Their season subscription, they need the people, yeah. So that means that they have to know what they're doing in September before January. And it is really kind of strange for a stand-up comedian or a groundling performer to fathom a show 18 months from now. I know. Because you go, well, I don't know what I'm doing. I, you know, the only people that do that to us is a dentist will give us an annual appointment and you always forget that. I mean, it's hard. It is difficult. You want to have this immense amount of flexibility because- in case something comes in last minute, you want to have the freedom to go do it. But by the same token, like you do have to make some plans and it's always, it's always a challenge. But I feel like if you have to cancel something, that means something really great came along and hopefully nobody will hold that against you. But my advice with people is often this, put something in your contract that's very specific, 60 days, 30 days that tells people that if film, television, or Broadway is to conflict, we will do our best to reschedule. So so they know before you go into it. Mm -hmm. When you don't have that, it feels like a a handshake where you're looking for a better prom date all the time. Right. The other thing I would say for any artist that's listening, because I've directed people that say, they call it the Spielberg clause. You know, if Steven Spielberg calls, I'm going to take that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And then that's kind of their fantasy. Yeah. So then if something comes up and they go, I got to get out of this. And I go, did Steven Spielberg call? They go, kind of, I got a game show. I go, well, that's not the Spielberg clause. Like that's ridiculous. Like you are delusional that that's going to change anything. So uh, I personally have a great affection for the performing arts center bookers and those people are investing in your show with you in it. They're yeah. not investing in the show Grease where we can change out Sandy. Right. If Sandy gets another part, we'll get you another good Sandy yeah. who can sing and, and dance. So I believe that when we're the centerpiece of our show, the integrity of keeping the date as best you can at all costs should be done because what you're doing is you're building a database in that town that when you return, those 100 people become 200 people the next time 400 the next time. Mm -hmm. And over time, you don't really need the industry because all of these towns are started collectively. It's kind of the old school Kickstarter 
which is that they're investing in you as you're growing. Definitely. I feel like that's what social media has given me is that I have, I already have these pockets of people that are hungry to see the show. So the show you saw in Austin, it was Stuart's subscription base, but then it was also mostly fans. And then obviously you came from a referral, but I have fans in these cities now. So it's this interesting experiment I've been showing up. Like I, I went to London and I don't know anybody in London and I have a, a UK following and I sold the show yeah. out. And so I have an Australia following. I'm like, if I can just get to these places, if I can fund getting to these places, if I can get some help routing somewhat of a tour, then I can make it to these cities. So that's that's more where the gap is for me is I have the people. I just don't necessarily have the uh, the means currently. It's a good problem to have at the moment. Yeah. Because with the ability to get to your audience, you can come to a town like Austin and there's the Spider House Ballroom. If you pick the right size place, yeah. it doesn't take that much marketing, which it used to take. It used to take concerted effort some advanced licking and stamping envelopes and mailing. And, right. But now there's a shortcut. And I know that I've talked to some musicians and rappers. They can show up in, in a town in Africa and they can put it out on Twitter. Yeah. And they can go Friday, there's a big jam and they'll have a thousand people. So that's kind of yeah. a mind blower. It is. It's amazing. And I think it's hard for people to want to get through that learning curve of figuring it out, you know, and I didn't really want to, I'm of a generation that isn't in love with social media. So it, it was a learning curve. And luckily that learning curve happened during the pandemic. So I had loads of time to sort of experiment. And that's why it was lucky the timing of it. Cause otherwise I don't think I would have, I don't think I would have spent the time doing that. And I think Everybody kind of has this opportunity. Every creative person does to try and create some sort of platform for themselves on social media. I know that in character, like I said before, I am more easily able to self-promote in character than I would as myself. I really would not want to do that as myself. So my heart goes <laughs> out to people who are whose product is themselves. Cause I understand that that's hard and that's a certain type of personality that's good at that, but it really is worth figuring out because you do have that control of getting your product out there and it just takes effort and figuring it out. And you have all those right. metrics at your disposal too. That's what's cool. It's like, I can tell people who my demographics are. I can, the age groups that are coming, not only from who I see coming to the show, but just from the demographics on these social media sites. And that's pretty valuable. Well, it is great when you are in character as Barbara, you can do some of the nuttiest things. I know that your um, mini tramp workout <laughs> has a lot of hits, yes. right? To watch you as Barbara doing her mini tramp workout and kind of helping people and things not going exactly how mm -hmm. she wants yeah. are hilarious. Mm -hmm. And they, in a short bit of business, they can really understand. And that is, uh, that drives them to another clip, mm -hmm. which drives them to another clip. So and it's relatable. I don't think, <laughs> oh, completely relatable. Yeah, it is completely relatable. Mm -hmm. But you also are a comic composer, which means that you're writing material, custom material for brands or musical 
outcome. So tell me a little bit about where you get inspired for that. Is it usually a gun for hire freelancing something or? Yeah, it has been. I wrote a song for Invisalign for a friend who worked for a production company. They were tasked with creating this cool pop song for Invisalign for teens. So I did that. So it's usually inspired by that, I'd say. The most recent comedic song I wrote was for Barbara for the Christmas show. Oh, that's hilarious. Yes. That song is great. <laughs> Thank you. It's tell them the, can you tell them the title of it so they can? The title is Let's Cozy Up, parentheses, Put Your Hands in My Muff, end parentheses. <laughs> and it's available on all streaming platforms. And so that, of course, was just inspired by the baby it's cold outside and the the sort of suggestive christmas songs that are out there and and so my husband and i wrote that together i wrote the music and we wrote the lyrics together and it's just full of double entendres but it's not dirty at all it could be a clean song (laughs) i would say single entendres but it's funny because you are using a big furry muff that your hands are in and so barbara is quite innocent in Mm -hmm in the singing of that song, but right. uh, it is titillating, I guess, would it be a good word for that era? Yeah, that was just inspired by wanting to start to create some more original content for Barbara's show. I also write children's music. I have a band called, well, then we're not really a band, but we're a group called the Broadway Babies. I teach music class to children and have also written some original music as the Broadway Babies. And we've been asked to write some songs for other friends. We've been asked to write songs for friends who are pitching show ideas, you know, with Jim Henson puppets and that kind of thing. And they've reached out to us being like, can you write a song about photosynthesis? And so then we figure out the the style that they're going for and, and write it. I mean, I don't know what else to say about the process. It's more just, you know, a theme. Right. But that would be a little bit more like a schoolhouse rock notion, right? Yeah. Which is to entertain and Mm -hmm. teach yeah yeah it's educational first and foremost but wanting the song to also be enjoyable and not most of the children's music uh dreck that's out there (laughs) yeah well and for your age though you have a bit of an old soul in the spirit of the singing you do i know that Mm -hmm. you uh are part of the Beverly Bombshells. Are you called the Bombshells now or yeah so that was one of the other groups i was a part of in the past that has since debanded, but yeah, uh, I've always loved old thirties and forties kind of jazz. That's what I've always been drawn to since I was a young kid. I used to choreograph synchronized swimming routines to Ella Fitzgerald in the pool when I was like, <laughs> you know, like eight years old. And my mom was like, where did this come from? My grandmother was actually an actress and she I believe she was probably the first to introduce me to some of this music. She would play blues in the night and sing that to me. So we bonded over that kind of music and also just being creative people and actresses. And my mom and the rest of my family are all in science. But that's sort of where I think my love of that era and music came from. Well, you had an opportunity to open for Rita Moreno and Ben Vereen. Did that Did you do that as yourself or as Barbara? I did that as myself. So I had created a theater company as well called Transcendence Theater Company up in Sonoma, California. I was one of the founders of that company and we brought acts up and I was able to be the opening act for Rita Moreno and Ben Vereen. And yes, I was myself. I did a lot of comedic 
medleys like I did Les Mis in five minutes with with another guy that was in the company. So that was mostly what I was tasked with were these comedic musical theater duets and mashups and whatnots. I remember you doing the Sondheim number uh, with Barbara, which was uh, Ladies That Lunch. Ladies Who Lunch, yeah. You have a really great taste in music. You seem to know what you sing well. Mm-hmm. And it's full of surprises. So, I mean, I I know that by now they have already gone to Instagram or gotten a taste on YouTube. Like, you don't get this far into listening to somebody without trying to put the face to the character, mm-hmm. you know? And mm-hmm. I, one of my brothers, Bill, is an avid listener of this podcast. He stops. He'll hear something, and then he'll stop to catch up, and then he'll come back to the conversation, which, but literally, if somebody recommends a book, he'll stop to read the book. Yeah, we always ask people about uh, tips about something that can bring some insight or inspiration. And I guess I wonder if as Barbara, you had a great tip insider on how to make it in show business. She had a whole number of things, but it really cracked me up when I stumbled across her number one tip in how to make it in show business. Oh yeah. <laughs> people are always asking me, Barbara, how do I make it in show business? There's so many things I can tell you. Tip number one, have wealthy parents. That's everything. Okay, good. And that's it. Yeah. Now, where did the voice come from? Is it a hybrid of, or is it some character that you were, when you were developing it? It's just, I think the lisp is something that people have because of dentures or these things that make it hard to say their S's. So Barbara whistles a lot because she's of a certain age. And, and then you choose what kind of lisp, because there's all kind of lisp. There's like a lateral lisp. I did some older people that had a lateral lisp, but Barbara was more of this forward lisp. But it wasn't necessarily intentional. I just was like, I know that that's what these kinds of people sound like. And initially she was pitched a lot lower and she was a lot more angry. Because in the mm. in the initial sketch, she was trying to prove that she could play Peggy Sawyer in 42nd Street, the ingenue role in 42nd Street. And she was a lot more angry at the producers. And over the years of kind of doing it, and particularly doing the videos, she's gotten a lot more cheery. (laughs) And I think Mm -hmm. there's a lot more mileage there with the character not being as angry, only because it's, it's more joyful to watch. She's delightfully ignorant that what she's saying is, you know, can be (laughs) misconstrued or whatever, you know? I think that the, her being oblivious to it actually makes it, uh, I don't want to say more innocent, but more understanding. What's interesting with this though, too, because it's on social media and I think there are people who believe Barbara to be real. You do have to be careful because a lot of the comedy is this woman it's what you're saying. It's these these words that, you know, are funny, that she doesn't know are funny, but there's also some ignorance because she's of a certain generation. And you have to be a little bit careful because the comedy comes from that. Oh, look, we can laugh at this ignorant person. But if you think, if people think that she's a real person, then they're getting on social media trying to teach Barbara how to actually behave, which is interesting. So you have this like <laughs> delicate balance to strike just to give an example, you know, there's a song, the Christmas song, chestnuts roasting on an open fire. 
uh, there's a lyric and folks dressed up like Eskimos. So Barbara covers that song. And then Barbara's joke is, you know, the Eskimos have over 30 words for snow, which is why I love us showbiz folk. We just call it cocaine. And so, <laughs> but Eskimos is a derogatory term, but it's in the song. Right. But then people were saying, but she probably would still say that because she's of a certain generation. But Leah, I know that that's not what we use anymore. So we changed that word to Inuits. She still sings Eskimos in the song, but says the Inuits have over 30 words for snow. So you try to, you know what I'm trying to say about like comedy. No, I do. I will say this. I ran into it myself when I was making fun of my dad who is now passed, but I was using a phrase that used the R word. Mm -hmm. Retarded is a word that we're now being cautious with. Right. And I was more making fun of a 50 style dad than I was because he would say when the ice cream truck would come around, right? He would try to deter us from going to the truck by saying, and I changed it to, if you eat ice cream, you're a moron. Right. But that was not what he said. And right. we were like, what? What are you talking about? He said, well, look at the sign on the back of the truck. It says, slow children, and there they all go, right? <laughs> right, right, right. Running after the ice cream truck. Right, right. So, but it is funny that sometimes, and you have to give it up once you know things are uncomfortable for people or you're doing something not right, mm-hmm. you have to sacrifice that laugh that comes from a real place or a, a nod to something else sometimes. Right. If you do it in the context of a theater or something where there are other characters to play against it that can give you a sense that it's not appropriate. Right. That's, that feels different because everybody can't be squeaky clean in a drama. There has to be some conflict. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. But I think that it's, it is getting trickier and trickier to, because everybody says, well, why are the Russians the bad guy or why? And you go, Oh, I guess we're really, what we're discovering is we're all the good guy and the bad guy no matter what we are, it's capable of being anybody, but yeah. So I'm, I'm, I say that not to be overly uh, diplomatic. I'm just saying that movies used to be, it was always the German. It was always the right, Russian. Right. It was, uh, yeah. Yeah. It's more nuanced and complicated than that. Good guy, bad guy. Right. And my, my apologies to everybody that I've just mentioned. That <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not, I'm not saying anybody's bad. Yeah. Uh, I will say that Barbara is quite good. She's very, very, as much as she has a little uh, underlying bitterness, I think, you know, of having not gotten those parts and stuff, I think that there's something genuinely when she's entertaining, she is trying to give her all to the dance and all to the note. And when she sings the Donna McKechnie number from Chorus Line, is that the... Music in the mirror, yeah. The music in the mirror. Mm-hmm. She chooses to use a hand mirror to use the reflection versus the entire wall. And she does it as earnestly as if it were a big Broadway number. You have to have a mirror in that song. Right. right. <laughs> so, you know, it is funny. The, 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 you just have a real gift for making those comic moments from simple gestures and eye raises and innuendos to kind of gift wrap it for the audience. Mm. I think this is my hat tip to you, which is all those other things of, could I be the star of the something? Nobody else can be Barbara. Right. You have created something that is all your own and that you will have forever. And that is episodic enough that you can change a song or you can change the jokes or you can 
change her backstory yeah. as you wish. Yeah. And that is real. I mean, what what comes from that, and, and it means that you can do that with other characters and other ways. So once your audience finds you, mm-hmm. it will be up to you to determine <laughs> how hard you want to work. I know. Well, Pat, I always say I feel like Leah's retired and Barbara's the thing, but we'll see. <laughs> yeah. Well, that may be true, but here's the thing. Barbara's going to keep Leah busy. Yes. She's giving her a job for life, and that's some security. Yeah. It's when it's when you get into one of those things like the ventriloquist and the dummy where you start arguing with yourself, and then Barbara doesn't need Leah anymore. That's where you're in trouble. <laughs> I know, I know. I'm just going to fully become, take over. Barbara's going to take over. You better tell your husband that's who he's going to be sleeping with pretty soon. Well, he, Barbara is me, so he's still attracted to Barbara. (laughs) (laughs) Ultimately, it's such a joyful thing for me to be able to do. And I think that that's also part of it. Leah loves singing these songs. They're the kinds of songs I've Mm. always loved. And so I'm lighting up singing these songs. So Barbara's lighting up singing these songs. and, And that is the gift of the thing. And I, it's not a means to an end. It's just a way for me to to really fully express, just do the things I love to do. And so I'm just thrilled that people are wanting to watch it. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm thrilled to have had you today. And I would encourage folks to go to the website, which is broadwaybarbara.com. And I want you also to all know that Leah is the one that is putting the broad back in Broadway. So <laughs> thank you so much for being a part of this today. Thank you, Pat. I really had a great time. (laughs) All right. So I think it'd be fun to wrap up this episode by hearing Broadway Barbara singing, Let's Cozy Up, Put Your Hands in My Muff. Enjoy. Together for some joyous holiday cheer. Let's build a little gingerbread house covered in marshmallow fluff. Let's take a walk in the snow And when you get cold You can put your hands in my muff Oh, it may look rough and scratchy And that might just turn you off But I guarantee the inside Is nice and warm and soft Later I'll eat your Christmas ham But before we both get stuffed We could use a little warm-up So just put your hands in Thanks for joining us today. Take a moment to subscribe and we will hold your seat for more creative conversation and a weekly spark of inspiration. Our show is produced by Sweetwood Creative with sound editing lovingly provided by Delilah Lovejoy. Our original music theme was written and sung by Maya Sharp with additional production support and sanity provided by Tony Deo, Tucker Hazel, and Diane Johansson. Please feel free to share your input or dash off a review on social media to help grow our creative community. You can find us on Instagram at Pat Hazel with two L's or visit our website at creativityincaptivity.fun. You heard that right. It's dot .fun because .com is just two dot .com and .fun is so much more fun. Ciao for now. Sledding, but I think that you can bet That after a day of playing in the snow You'll be stiff and I'll be wet Put your shiny balls on the Christmas bush And when you've had enough Don't be shy, my holiday
friend of yours lost his watch inside So just put your hands 